Well, Martin Luther was once asked, what are your favorite psalms? What are the best psalms? And he replied, the Pauline psalms. Might be a bit confusing because Paul didn't write any psalms. And so the follow-up question was this. So, Martin Luther, which psalms are you talking about? And he said, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. If you know these psalms, you know why Luther called them Pauline Psalms. It's not that Paul wrote them. Rather, it's that these psalms deal with the the great themes of the Gospel that Paul dealt with so often. Themes of sin and the despair it brings and our lostness and the sheer grace of God to the penitent sinner and how it comes in all its glory. And in that way, these psalms are a little bit like Romans or Ephesians or you might throw in Galatians and Colossians. And Paul's constantly talking about the darkness of our sin and the the greatness of the grace of Christ. Well, this morning we have the privilege of looking at one of these psalms. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 130. Most of you know this is one of the songs of ascent. This is one of the 15 songs, psalms, beginning in Psalm 120, going up through Psalm 134, which all have the inscription to them, a song of ascent. And to our best guess, these are the psalms that were sung by the pilgrim travelers as they traveled up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord three times a year according to God's command. So they went up to Jerusalem. Thus, the title of my series, Going Up. Going up to Jerusalem, going up to worship the Lord. And my hope in working through these psalms, they would increase our heart for worship because every single one of these, if you deal with the themes of them, have, have themes that are helpful to us regarding worship. So far, we've seen seven of these psalms. We look at eight today, and we'll have seven after this. So today's like the, the midpoints, like, like the peak. It's like, like the top of, of all of them. And in fact, you know that we've not been um, looking at them consecutively. We've looked at various ones according to the day. And um, it's very appropriate we look at Psalm 130 today being the, the pinnacle psalm in many ways of the Psalms of Ascent. It, it is um, my favorite psalm of the Psalms of Ascent, just like this past week was, was my favorite day uh, throughout all the year. Um, June 21st, first day of summer, longest day of the year. Several of us were at, at uh, Rock Cut State Park for a party. We go out and we enjoy just every last little bit of sunshine that we can. We watch the sun go down and finally left when it was getting pretty dark that we could hardly see, although the, sun, the moon was out. Um, the cloud cover was there, but it was a great time. And Psalm 130 has more gospel light than any of the songs of ascent. So it's appropriate for us to, to look at this psalm as it just drips with the gospel. And, and my prayer today, and especially for this psalm and for these psalms, is that God would use these psalms and this psalm to stir hearts and affection towards Him. Now, one of the things that's good about walking through the psalms and working through the psalms and reading the psalms is that the psalms have such a way that they really touch our hearts. They're, they really get to the heart of what it means to walk with God. The Psalms are written from life experience. They are cries to God. They are praise to God. Some of them are just all-out praise and worship of God. 
Some of them, the author is experiencing heartache. He's in trouble. These are called songs of lament and anguish. Which Psalm 130 is a bit like that at times. There, there are times when the psalmist is really close to God, expressing just his, his intimate expressions of love to God. At other times, the psalmist is far from God, sometimes even doubting God, doubting whether even the loving kindness of God is continuing to exist. They span the spectrum of, of praise and wisdom. And, but, but really, what do they all do? They, they all are getting at, at, at a, a writer's heart to God. And this morning, my hope is that we would join in Psalm 130 and express a similar heart to Him. The psalm I've entitled, Walking, Waiting for the Lord. Because that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's, He's facing his sin. He's seeing it in all its ugliness. And then he cries to the Lord, looking for deliverance, meditating on His grace and knowing that mercy comes from God and He waits for the Lord. So you can listen for these themes I read. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with Him is abundant redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Psalm breaks up nicely into four different parts. The first part is we see this desperate prayer coming in verses 1 and 2 or to help engage us into the psalmist's experience. I cry to you. That's my first point. I cry to you. That's what we see in verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. He finds himself in trouble and crying to the Lord for help. The language is similar to that of Jonah. Remember when he was in the depths of the sea, he cried to the Lord as well. He said, Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. He talked even later in that psalm that he, he, he gave, that prayer he gave in, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 5, about how water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He was talking about physically down deep in the water, close to drowning. Similar language of verse 1 here is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe desperation. Psalm 71, verse 20 says this, You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Psalm 71 is written by an older, godly man who had been through many trials in his life before and God was always faithful to bring him up again. And here he's just saying that you've shown me trials, but you again, I'm in one right now, you're going to take me up out of the depths. There the... The figurative language here, out of the depths, is not talking about physically being in a wholesome place. It's talking about spiritually being in a troublesome place. And the question here in this psalm is, what sort of depths does the psalmist find himself in? Is he in a hole? Is he deep in the water? Is it figurative to describe the trials of life? Is another circumstance? What's he talking about? Well, we don't know for sure, but we've got some clues in Psalm 130 that will help us. If you look at verses 3 and 4, you see that he's talking about 
forgiveness. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God's forgiveness is, is on his mind. As he's pondering the reality of God being a forgiving God, it gives a hint into the troubles he experiences. And then when you look at 7 and 8, you see the same similar theme of redemption coming up twice there and God's loving kindness to show grace. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God extends forgiveness to the nation of Israel. And so you see these themes of forgiveness and redemption and you can only guess that verse 1 is referring to the depths of sin that he's experiencing. He, he finds himself, I think, in trouble. Maybe the trouble that's been caused by his sin. Perhaps the, the guilt that has come down upon him. That's the trouble he is in. All commentators I read drew that conclusion. And then we're not told of his specific sin. But we're told about his effect upon his life. It, it brought him down. It brought him to despair. It brought him low. And that's not surprising for us. That's what sin does. Sin looks like a candy-coated poison pill. On the outside, it looks attractive. And maybe it looks sweet to the taste. But once it gets down, it rots within and destroys. The wages of sin is death. And it can bring about a slow death, sin can. David describes the effect of his sin in Psalm 32. He said, when I was silent about my sin, that his sin was there, it wasn't released, it wasn't confessed, it wasn't forgiven. When I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's what sin does. It causes slow death. Day and night, your hand, O Lord, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He describes his anguish. He's experiencing, and we can only assume that something similar is happening here in Psalm 130. Sin is having a depressing and devastating effect upon his life, bringing him low. He's in the depths and he's crying out to the Lord and, he, and he's seeking his way out by crying to the Lord. It's the good way to get out from sin and from the depths of despair that sin brings. I love the words of Derek Kidner, one commentator. He says, self-help is no answer to the depths of distress. You're going to help depths of distress of your sin. Helping yourself isn't going to match it. Isn't going to help you. See, when you're in the depths of sin, there's no other way out than the Lord. And sadly, many try to get out underneath their own strength. They try to say, well, I'll just be better next time. Or I can do it. Or, or I won't fall again. Not calling out to the Lord. It's interesting, when our problems are small, we might think that we can manage them. But when our problems are big, we have nowhere else to turn. We turn to the Lord. And in that way, the bringing God to the depths can be actually a blessing as well. There's a book called The Valley of Vision. Not sure if many of you know that book. You should. It's a compilation of Puritan prayers. And the, the very first prayer is where the book gets its title from. And it can help us here. It's, the, it's in the valley where you see the vision of God. The prayer goes like this. You have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Your glory. Isn't that good? Right? When we're, we're hemmed in, where, where else can we see? All we can do is, is look up and see the Lord. Sovereign Grace Music has uh, put together a, a valley of vision and they've, they've changed the words but a little, little bit like this. When You lead me to the valley of vision, I can see You in the heights. 
And through my humbling, though my humbling wouldn't be my decision, it's here your glory shines so bright. So let me learn that the cross precedes the crown. To be low is to be high. That's, where, that's the valley where you make me more like Christ. In the daytime there are stars in the heavens, but they only shine at night. And the deeper that I go into darkness, the more I see their radiant light. So let me learn that my losses are my gain. To be broken is to heal. That's the valley where your power is revealed. So let me find your grace in the valley. Let me find your life in my death. Let me find your joy in my sorrow, your wealth in my need, that you're near with every breath in the valley. And that's what we see here. We see the psalmist in the valley and turning the only place where he can see. It's the Lord. Desperate over sin. And to the Lord he cries in verse 1. And he pleads in verse 2. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. As Kyle and Dalish, the Old Testament commentators say, his life hangs upon the thread of divine compassion. He's in the depths. He's longing for the Lord and his only escape out is divine compassion. I just say, have you ever reached a point in your life we can say that as well. Is that I, I, I have no other way out except the Lord. Maybe you're there today. I don't know. This is, by the way, the first step of being a Christian. I mean, th- this is the first baby step of what it means to be a believer in Christ is to see your own sin. And oh, how, how hard it is. So I deal with people, the majority of people, fail to see their sin. And we don't see your sin, you don't see your need for God. We don't see your need for God, you don't call upon the Lord. We don't call upon the Lord, you can't be saved because everyone who calls upon the Lord who is saved. So this seeing your sin is the first step of being a Christian. And I just hope maybe you can relive those moments, maybe you're there now. So you just think about your own sin before the Lord and you say I cry to you. It's a desperate prayer. We see in verses 3 through 4, though, the, the hope of forgiveness. This prayer might go like this I trust in you. So I cry to you, and I trust in you. In verse 3, the psalmist puts forth this rhetorical question, which is really the, the core and gem of this whole psalm. And he asks this question because he knows he's guilty and in desperate need of forgiveness. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, suppose that God had a notebook in his hand. And he had a, a pen in the other hand. And suppose he was watching your every action. And scrutinizing your every act. And every sin you ever commit. He wrote it down. And he'd sit there and follow you around. And if you did something wrong, he'd write it down. And he'd mark it on his notebook. Every time. Wherever you are. At church, at family, at home, in the quiet, in your car. Wherever you are, God's always watching. If you would mark iniquities, and the idea here is that God would, would mark these iniquities so that, that same notebook that He's marking would come up on the judgment day when you're standing before the Lord and He's going to judge you. Whether you're going to be where, merit eternal life, be with Him. Whether you're going to merit judgment in hell, what are you going to do? And He pulls out your book and says, okay, well, let's see how well you're done. And He pulls out His little notebook and, and starts going through all of your transgressions. At the time of the judgment. 
If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is who? Help me. Nobody. The most righteous person among us cannot stand before the Lord in those ways. Our sins are too many. Our sins are too great. Scripture says, Psalm 143, verse 2, In your sight, no living man is righteous. Isaiah 56, 53, verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. As William Plummer said, It's utterly vain for unbelievers to delude themselves with the persuasion that they are not sinners against God and under His wrath and curse. In vain does any man persuade himself that he can by doing meet the precept or by suffering satisfy the penalty of the law of God. Listen, if God were to record all of your sin and keep a tally of them, we would not stand before the Lord. Because, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. A man is not justified by the works of the law. And we think about standing before God in a judgment, a merit-based judgment upon how well we have done, our destruction awaits And it's good for us, church family, to think of these things. Just where we would be apart from Christ. And then think about this. Wayne Grudem says, It was not necessary for God to save any people at all. You realize that? You know, we, we can often think that, that God is, is in heaven and of course what He does is forgive. I remember having a lunch with a, a non-Christian one time and trying to explain God to him and talking about God. And he said, well, of course God's going to forgive me. I said, oh, really? So why do you think so? He says, well, it's his job. He's like a forgiving God. Of course he does that. And what this man didn't realize is that, that God is under, under no obligation to save anybody or was under no obligation to save anybody. We, we could have been just like the angels. Second Peter 2.24 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Right? When, when angels sinned, they got one chance. And when they blew it, they were set aside for the final judgment. God could have done that with us. He could have said, okay, you get one chance. If you blow it, you're set aside. He could have left us in our sins and committed us to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Oh, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? None of us. We'd be under condemnation facing the punishment for sin. But, but the good news comes in verse 4. But, but there is forgiveness with you. This is one of the blessed buts of Scripture. Do you know the blessed buts what I'm talking about? This is like Ephesians 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, speak about how dead we were in our sins and how we were children of wrath. But verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ. The darkness of our sin, but God. This is similar to Romans 1 through 3, 118. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And for two chapters, Paul goes on to describe sin and how bad it is, and how terrible it is. But the blessed but comes in Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As dark as it is, 
the light shines brighter. Titus chapter 3, we once ourselves were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Listen, right? Things look dark, but God comes and shines and brings the good news. We are on death row. But the President pardoned us and invited us to live in the White House instead. And that is the good news of Psalm 130. There is forgiveness of God, with God. God is a forgiving God. And so my friend who I spoke with, who said, well, forgiving, that's his job. Well, that's what he does. But it's not inherent that he had to do so. By his grace, he chose to do so, to extend his mercy to us. And when we know and experience his forgiveness, we are blessed David said in Psalm 32.1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This is the heart of the Gospel. That our sin is forgiven. That it's wiped away. It's, it's done away with. Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. Somehow God takes his faith and gives him back righteousness. It's not the, the righteous life that God says we're righteous. It's by faith that we are made righteous in Him. We believe in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for our sin. God, God forgives us and He credits us with the righteousness of Christ to our account. And I just, it doesn't get better than that. I mean, this is better than a wonderful dream. You, you picture the most wonderful dream that you've ever had where you're living in a mansion or, or whether you're, you know, all happiness, family's great, whatever. The, the happiest dream you can ever have. This is way better because this is real. This is way better than winning the lottery. All the money in the world you could ever have, ever want. Because this is eternal. This is better than anything that you can think and ought to stir our hearts to joy. Do you remember how the response of those from the city of Antioch who heard this news for the first time that forgiveness extended to them? Paul is on his first missionary journey going up through Pisidia um, on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a city up there called Antioch. It's called Pisidian Antioch. And, and he went into the synagogue and told the Jews about Jesus. And they were intrigued and begged him to come back the next day, the next Sabbath. And so I'm sure there was a buzz throughout the whole city that week talking about, hey, there's, there's something about Messiah coming or, or whatever. And, and uh, so it says that when Paul came the next Sabbath day, many Gentiles had come together. In fact, the whole town was almost there wanting to hear this good news. But the Jews, being jealous because of all the assemblies, turned against Paul. And Paul said this to the Jews to whom he went first. He said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so then he goes and he, he speaks to the Gentile people who are on the outside of the synagogue probably, just, just kind of coming in and begging and saying, what was this about? He says, for so the Lord commanded us, I have placed you Jews as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Christ the Messiah isn't just for the Jews. He's come to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, what was their response? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They're rejoicing. Spontaneous rejoicing and praise. And that's, I say, how we ought to respond to these things. 
but there is forgiveness with you. Praise the Lord, right? Worship Him. Comes to all who believe. So let us rejoice. But there's another response here in verse 4 that, that surprises us. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Some, something doesn't, doesn't quite, quite match there. We would expect something like this. There's forgiveness with you that you may be praised. Just like happened at City in Antioch. Just like often happens. The man finds a treasure and from joy over, he goes and tells all that he has. Right? There's joy, there's worship in, in God forgiving. It seems natural that forgiveness brings us to love and adore Him. But you may be feared goes better with something like this, right? But there is judgment with you that you may be feared. I mean, doesn't that seem to match better? I would think so. Yet the psalmist here puts the fear of God in the right response for God's forgiveness. And so you've got to think, about why is this? Why is it then forgiveness leads to fear? Well, here's what I'd say. Is that the fear of God is a huge concept in the Bible. Used oftentimes with different connotations. Sometimes it can mean fear or dread of judgment. It can mean that. But it also has a sense of high honor and respect and worship. Oftentimes it has this moral component. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8.13. But, but the fear of the Lord always has to do with coming into His presence somehow. We're always realizing His reality somehow. And I think one of the best ways to understand that you may be feared is like last week. We looked at Psalm 128 last week. Psalm 128, verse 1. You can look back there. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in His ways. If you remember my message last week, I had some kind of line that said this. Um, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we get a brief definition of it right here. Who walks in his ways. Right? Well, you fear the Lord. God is in your presence. You, you out of reverence and, and fear and godly awe, just desire to walk in his ways. And I think that's the idea here. There is forgiveness with you that we may walk in his ways. Knowing he's present and among us. See, there's some people who, who get forgiveness wrong. They think God forgives, so it matters not how we live. But over and over in the Bible, you see that the opposite is true, right? When we, is, the opposite is true. When we come to believe in Jesus, it changes everything. God makes us a new creature, gives us a new desire. We know the freeness of grace in our lives, and we give ourselves then to serve Him and love Him. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Right? We believe we're saved by grace. We're His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how, when you know forgiveness, it just changes your life. Romans 6, right? The question came up right here. What about you're forgiven? Well, if you're forgiven everything, then you'll just, people will live licentiously, right? They'll, they'll live sinfully. Paul says this, no. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. And here's the question. How shall those who die to sin still live in it? If you know your forgiveness, if it's wiped away, how can you still live in those same sins? It's forgiven sin. And you will find, if you know God's forgiveness, you, you will desire to live in a righteous and holy, obedient, God-fearing way. It's just how it works. But you show me someone who doesn't care about their holiness at all, I'll show you someone who doesn't understand forgiveness. When you understand forgiveness, it changes everything and you want to serve Him and love Him. Not because you have to do anything, but because you know of your relationship with the Lord that you're wiped clean and you want to submit to Him. Titus 2 says this, The grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us. The grace of God in Jesus Christ, Him dying on the cross has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Here you see, Jesus came, He redeemed us from every lawless deed. He purified us as a people so that we would be zealous for good deeds. That's how it always works. That's why... Grace, the grace of God is a teacher. It teaches us the way of, of righteousness. It, it, it brings us to be people who are zealous for good deeds. It's got the effect of God's grace upon our life. It doesn't bring us into complacency because the price has been paid. No, it brings us into submission in light of the greatness of our God. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Well, let's look at our... Our third couplet, verses 5 through 6, we have, I cry to you, verses 1 and 2, the desperate prayer, I cry to you. The hope of forgiveness, I trust in you. Now, trust doesn't appear in verses 3 through 4, but I think that's the idea, is that I'm trusting, oh God, you're going to forgive my sin, I'm going to walk in your ways. And here we have the longing for relief, I wait for you. Verses 5 and 6, look for the repeated words, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait And his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. We see four times this concept about waiting for the Lord, hoping in the Lord, longing for the Lord coming up. Right there in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. It's repeated again. The same thing. My soul does wait. My soul is another name for me. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And then we use synonym here in verse 3. And in His Word do I hope. I'm hoping in God. I'm hoping for His Word. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 6. How it begins. My soul waits for the Lord. So you get the main point here? Verses 5 and 6. It's waiting. I wait for you. And you say, well, what's He waiting for? I think verses 1 and 2 help us shows what he's waiting for. I think he's in the depths. He's toiling over his sin. Verses 3 and 4 speaks about his hope and trust and forgiveness. Maybe he's waiting for forgiveness to come. Maybe he's waiting for full experience of forgiveness to come into his heart. Maybe he's waiting for God to help him out of some sinful circumstances that took him into the depths. Think about Psalm 51 when David confessed his sin to the Lord. It's not like he was just kind of wiped clean in some ways. Experience. He, he said in Psalm 51, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He's, he's just longing for this, this cleansing. And, and maybe that takes some time. Maybe that takes some assurance in his mind. We, we don't exactly know. But he is longing for this. You ever longed for the forgiveness of God? Just earnestly waited and hoped And God, may it come. Sometimes you order something online, you wait for a package to come. You ever waited for a package to come? You go to Amazon, you get some books. You waited, Ruthie? Great, what would you wait for? To come? Anything you think of? Huh? Yeah? Yeah? Good. One thing you've gotten. Good. If you get older, you get more things is what you do. But you can wait. And And sometimes it seems like 
Is it ever going to come? Am I ever going to get that letter? Am I ever going to get that package? Is it ever going to come? And sometimes forgiveness can feel like that. Or maybe you sinned and you've confessed it to the Lord, but maybe you haven't fully repented. Maybe there's a struggle in the soul. And you're longing for this forgiveness. or You're longing for this feeling or experience of forgiveness to be wiped clean. You say, Lord, I long for this. The psalmist is longing for, and oftentimes a longing of the heart to the things we care for most deeply. He gives an illustration then about how much he longs for it. He gives the illustration of the watchman. Uh, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Now, the white watchman, the night watchman, looks hard and waits for the morning. It's his job to stand on the city wall, stay alert while everyone else slept. Lest there be some kind of movement out there, some kind of enemy army approaching. But he would watch and watch and watch in the stillness of the night for an attack to come. If there's any disturbance in the city, if he sense a foreign army, he's going to cry out and say, Army approaching! Army approaching! And wake everybody up so everyone can sleep. But his job is to stay awake. Now, it's not that it's, it's um, such a difficult job in terms of physically being demanding. It, it, it's not physically demanding. It's... Not intellectually demanding. It doesn't demand a, a, a great amount of skill. You know what's so hard about being the night watchman? And when you start yawning, what happens? Now, I know this happens every week, every Sunday morning in my sermons. You start saying, okay. Well, and time starts dragging on. Okay, I'm, I'm hoping to... There's a, a new book out called Saving Eutychus. This is a great book. talks about engaging people in their sermons. All right, Eutychus is the boy who fell out of the window after Paul had been preaching like all night long. And so uh, that was an effort to save Eutychus right there. Anyway, but the, the, the hours are dragging on and the temptation to fall asleep would be, be great. And the, what does the watchman want more than anything else? He wants morning to come. Because he wants his sleep. He, he wants to see that sun arise and the dawn come up so that his work would be finished so that he could go to bed and get some sleep. You ever pulled an all-nighter? You had some kind of project? <laughs> Says my college-age daughter. <laughs> of course. Right? It's, just, it's just hard. and you're, you, know, you're, you're, you hit about three in the morning and you're desperately wanting to go to sleep and saying, why did I procrastinate this so much? I wanted to get this done. I didn't quite get it done. And you just want to really... It's hard. You want nothing more than to see that dawn break and so the thing, the paper's done, you hand it in and so you can go to bed. Well, if any of you work the night shift, you know what I'm talking about. I know, Brian, you work a lot of night shifts in recent days. I know I did when I worked at the hospital. I worked in the IS, the Information Systems Department, and uh, we had a night operator. He would come in um, five days a week and he'd work the night shift. We had another guy who came in during the weekend, Saturday, Sunday nights, uh, to work the shift. And uh, he would work... All night long. And his job wasn't so difficult, but he had things to do. He backed up all our servers, print out a bunch of reports, distribute them, do some data entry, uh, wait and register people if they came in. Um, but when he went on vacation, it was those of us in the office who had to come and, and relieve him of his work. And every so often I had an opportunity to take the night shift. Enough so that I can sympathize with you, Brian, and I can sympathize with others who've worked the night shift. How many of you worked the night shift? You know what I'm talking about. Quite a few of you. Good. Some of you may be working the night shift now. Um, but I know it's hard. It's not that the work is so demanding, but 
I remember the quiet hours in the hospital hallways. I remember the silence in our office without the co-workers around. I remember the, the conversation with co-workers that were few and far between because there weren't a lot around. I mean, it's different for you, Brian, if you're in the emergency room and there's lots of hustle and bustle, lights are on, anything like that. But I was like dark away in the hole someplace and I didn't see a soul sometimes for hours. And I remember the one thing I longed for more than anything else. I longed for that morning to come. And right outside my office, we had uh, this big sheet of, of, of windows there that we could see. And, and I remember seeing that sun come up and saying, yes, yes, I'm almost done. I'm going to be able to go home and go to bed now. But I remember longing for that and the shift would be over. Well, that's the longing of the psalmist. He's longing to know and experience the forgiveness of God in his life. And I think that in our culture, we've lost this a little bit. Christianity's turned like into this formula, right? They say Christianity is easy. It's ABC, right? Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus and confess your sin. A, B, C. And just confess your sin and boom, you're not. It's, it's, well, life is wonderful now. Your sins are forgiven. But in reality, we know it's, it's not always quite like that. We don't always feel forgiven. We don't always experience or know it. And there's an element, though, of course, for the ABCs of the gospel is true. It is simple. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Christ died for our sins. We simply need to call out and cry to Him. But, but the response doesn't always go so quick. And sometimes it can be a struggle for years and years and years in the depth of your soul to experience full forgiveness of the Lord. Sometimes it's a, it's a long wrestling match. The Lord, as you struggle with your, your desires for the world and, and counting the cost of Christ and whether that's, that's good or not and whether, whether you can forsake your sin and, and follow the Lord. And there are lots of examples of that through church history. I mean, people in uh, biographies just describe their, their painful toil Till the point of their salvation. One such example that stands out to me is, is John Bunyan. This little book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Just a, a little book can be read in just a few hours. And uh, Grace Abounding the Chief of Sinners is basically uh, his autobiography testimony that he left to the world. John Bunyan, of course, wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, I remember reading this book and we read it out loud. I read it to Yvonne. And I remember he just kind of meandered around and like I'm trying to get okay so so um what were you like before you were a Christian and how'd you become a Christian and then what were you like afterwards and it seemed like he he just struggled with his sin and then then he'd come to faith and get some light but maybe it wasn't wasn't the true light and he struggled and he thought about well here here I am and and um oh Look at Judas. Maybe I'm a Judas. And he struggled with that. And, and he struggled in here with Esau. Esau who wanted repentance but couldn't find it. Or he thought about Peter and how Peter denied the Lord and how he, how he fell back. And, and he's struggling just back and forth and meandering around about his conversion. And constantly he's like, well, is he converted or not? Oh, maybe he's not converted. Oh, maybe he is converted. Maybe he's not. And he's just struggling with, maybe I committed the unpardonable sin. It just goes on and on. And it was kind of a frustrating book because you didn't get a sense. I didn't get a sense of the time. He just kind of meandered. And I, I sensed that some of this even brought him into his Christian life after he was saved, understanding really what took place. And, and this line of becoming a Christian, not becoming a Christian, isn't as clear as, as we all might lead to believe because there's this, this struggle. And, and, and don't just think that mouthing words of confession just solves and settles the whole matter. Oftentimes there is this 
this difficulty and this waiting and this struggle and longing for relief and longing for help. And, and I don't know where you are today, but you might be in some of these, some of these ways to struggle for assurance, maybe what you're struggling with. Struggling with the reality of the gospel and believing it. But I just say this, full relief from sin isn't always so easy. We can say it is, we can play it is, but it's not. Past sins come up again and again and again. Paul even talked about the struggle that he had. He, he talked in Romans chapter 7 about how the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good, I want to do good, but, but I see a different law in the members of my body. I, I joyfully concur the law, it's good, but, I, but I'm this way and the struggle even for, for sanctification is a is a struggle and sometimes it, it comes to the point of forgiveness. Well, if I've sinned again, have I really repented of that sin? Am I out of the depths of that sin or am I not? God, please, please help me. And, and David, deep into his walk with God, when he was an old man, he said this, Psalm 25, 6 and 7, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. And do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. And for your goodness sake, O Lord. Did you catch that? He's, he's here in the latter part of his life. And still the, his sin is haunting him. But the sin of his youth is still haunting him. He says, God, don't remember that sin. I do say it's a struggle of belief. Because those who have believed in the Lord face no condemnation. And, and, and yet he's kind of struggling with that. He said, I have these sins in the past, but has he dealt with that or not? And he's struggling and dealing with it. But I say the struggle is a sign of life. The psalmist here is urging and longing for this forgiveness to come. So if you're struggling with your walk with God, well, join the club. Wait for the Lord. And may He in His time come to your help. Remember this, Lamentations 3.25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. As you wait for Him, know that, that He is good. Well, let's get to my final point quickly. The desperate prayer, I cry to You. The hope of forgiveness, I trust in You. The longing for relief, I wait for You. Here's the evangelistic plea, hope in Him. Verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for there with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. At this point, the psalmist turns not to be introspective about himself, but he turns outward. And he turns to his readers now. Six verses describing a struggle, and now he calls all of us into the same experience. It's a little similar to Psalm 51. Verses 12 and 13, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Right? When, when I have come to know the, the joy of my salvation, I, I want to tell it to sinners so they can become converted. Or Paul, when he was converted, that road to Damascus, what did he do? Immediately, he began to go into the synagogues and confound people and prove that Jesus was the Christ. He found the truth and now he wants to tell it. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I forget what it is, 5, I believe, we believe, therefore we speak. 
We believe the word. Therefore, that's what drives us to speak. You remember in Acts 3 and 4, which we read together as a church a couple weeks back, Peter and John, they were caught in prison and they said, they're told by the Sanhedrin, stop preaching in His name. And they said, what? We can't stop speaking. When it's true of you, you will speak it. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. His hope and his trust is in the Lord. Even if it's not totally resolved in his own mind, even if he still feels himself in the depths in some sense, he, he knows he's in a good place because it's good to wait on the Lord. He knows he's waiting for the Lord. He's calling others to wait and hope in the same Lord. And I do the same thing. Rock Valley Bible Church, hope in the Lord. I would call all of you to hope in the Lord. Verse 7 tells us why to hope in the Lord for. That's an explanatory word. Why do we hope in the Lord? Because with the Lord there is loving kindness and with Him is abundant redemption. In other words, God is a, a faithful God who extends His love to His people. There is loving kindness with the Lord. There is grace. There is mercy with the Lord. So hope in Him. And there is, as it says, abundant Redemption. You know, you think that redemption is good enough. Redemption means buying us back, buying us back from our sin. You think that might be enough, but he says there's abundant redemption. I, I think that means that, that God pulls us and redeems us in every, in, in every way. And I think that it's not just for me, but there's abundant redemption for all who call upon Him. And this redemption is so abundant that those who believe in Christ know zero condemnation. There's now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in Christ experience forgiveness of all of our sins. All of our transgressions have been forgiven. When we come to faith in Christ, He cleanses you thoroughly. You're thoroughly clean. That's why we're called saints. You notice that in the Bible, Paul writes to the Philippians, those who are saints in Christ Jesus. He writes to those in Ephesus who are saints in Christ Jesus. Those in Colossae, those who are saints who are in Christ Jesus. What's a saint? A saint is a holy and righteous one. And why we are called holy and righteous. Why? Because we are totally cleansed. Not because everything's perfect on the outside, but because God has redeemed us to be perfect in His sight. So Rock Valley Bible Church, hope in the Lord. And maybe this morning finds you religious but lost. This psalm might do its work for some of you. God has used it before. John Wesley, 18th century Methodist evangelist, catch this, was ordained to the ministry in 1728. 1728. America wasn't even a country back then. Kind of in the beginning stages of those things. George Whitfield was preaching here in uh, America. Jonathan Edwards was around. And for a full decade, Wesley labored. He was a great evangelist. He was a missionary. Preached on both sides of the Atlantic. Going and, and doing his thing. Calling people to trust in the Lord. And yet, for a full decade, by his own admission, he was not converted to Christ until 1738. He was religious, but he was lost. He didn't understand the free forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. And on May 24th, 1738, Wesley was in London, attended St. Paul's Cathedral, and heard Psalm 130 sung as an anthem. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And with those words, deep conviction came upon his heart. How could he find acceptance with God? He thought, who kept perfect records of his many sins. And then later that night, Wesley found himself visiting a small group of believers 
where they listened to and heard Martin Luther's introduction to the commentary of Romans being read. And he would point back to that point when he was finally regenerated. His soul was strangely warmed. John Wesley was converted to Christ. And that may be where some of you are today. If John Wesley could preach across the Atlantic for 10 years without being saved, I'm not foolish enough to believe that some of us are deceived as well, thinking that we're okay and we're not. But I say this, hope in the Lord and you'll find mercy because He has abundant redemption there. Well, maybe this morning you're here and you're just flat out not saved. Maybe you're here and you're far from Christ. I just say you the same thing. Hope in the Lord. So the Lord is where you're going to find mercy and redemption. Maybe you today find you struggling with recurring, besetting sin. Why no experience full forgiveness and victory? I just say hope in the Lord and long for Him. You know, the valley may be a, a good place for us to be. Because it makes us look up to the Lord. And your continual besetting sin is a good place to be. It makes you look up to the Lord. And I say, look to Him. Look to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that we might find Your grace in the valley. Father, I pray that we would find Your joy in our sorrow. Lord, that though we may be in the depths, I pray that we would look to the heights. I pray that we would know that the way up is really down. And we travel down into the depths. We are are led to really trust in You. Lord, I, I pray that we would see that our, our broken heart is a healed heart and our contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit and that our repenting soul, O oh Lord, is the victorious soul. And Lord, that when we have nothing, we actually possess all. And the valley is the place of vision. And help us to see that. I, I pray for any soul here who is apart from Christ. Lord, I would pray that You would grant repentance. God, that they might be believers in Jesus and might know the complete and whole forgiveness that is there in Him. May we who who believe and trust in You realize how great Your redemption is. That's abundant. I thank You for Your promise. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The promise of the church, you will redeem your church from all our iniquities. And that you, upon the cross, taken upon yourselves the sin of the world, that we might just look to you. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you've taken our sin and nailed it to the cross. Father, help us to see you be our vision, O Lord, in the valley. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.